Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great psalm. We thank you for this great prayer, this great hymn that you have given for our benefit, that you might equip us in every way, O oh Lord, that we might live in godliness, that we might grow in holiness, that we might think your thoughts after you. So, Lord, if we are to benefit from this psalm this morning, Lord, we require your grace. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to give us your grace, not simply to merely understand some new things, but to be changed by them. So, Lord, to these ends, we call on your holy and precious name. Amen and amen. The holidays are a, a wonderful time of the year. Uh, I think, you know, having just spent some time uh, with family over the last few days, you know, we, we think a little bit about uh, the smell of turkey in the oven and the smell of ham. And no, I'm not trying to get you hungry early. I'm not trying to do that. But um, many of us have really fond memories of these kinds of things. Maybe the joy of a favorite pie. And if you're like me and you can't make up your mind which pie you like the best, you take a little piece of several different kinds, as I was happy to do on Thanksgiving. Um, if anyone else did that, your secret is safe with me. I won't tell no one. We look forward to time with family and friends. Our, and as we think of the Christmas season, hopefully our minds are on giving more than receiving. 
And even if you hate snow, you may be okay with just a little bit of it on Christmas morning. It's funny how that is, isn't it? Um, just a little bit of it. All of this is to say that the holidays are indeed a joyous time of the year. But not for everyone. Not for everyone. Now, many folks, for many folks, the holiday season is a season of depression. It's a season of really agony and anger and despair. And the reasons for this are probably as varied as the people that experience it. I mean, for some, you know, the holiday intensifies loneliness. I mean, if, you're, if you spend a lot of time being lonely throughout the year, what does the holidays do? They have a tendency to intensify that loneliness. And for some, if, if you've got any kind of sense of shame or loss due to broken relationships in your past, what, do the what does the holiday season have a tendency to do? It has a tendency to intensify that. For some, the holidays are a reminder of a loved one who has passed away or a tragedy that has occurred. But for some, the holidays are a reminder of, of deep family dysfunction. So, because of this, I've decided to begin our holiday season with a word to those and for whatever reason loathe the holidays. That's the title of this message, a word for those who loathe the holidays. Now, I understand that the word loathe may be a bit strong for some. Some might say loathe, that's a little bit strong. I don't loathe the holidays, but I'm going to be okay when they're past. I'm going to be okay when I can get back to my routine. That helps me forget about stuff. But for other people, they, they would say the lo word loathe is not strong enough. It's simply not strong enough. Then the pain that is experienced, it, it's understandable. When we are hurting, we don't want anything that intensifies that pain, do we? Absolutely not. Now, for some of us, for many of us, I presume the holidays is a time of joy. And you might think, well, you know, this is good. I can check out on this one, you know. Finally, I can check out. I can, I can just sit here and this isn't for me. Yes, it is. It's for everyone in this room because everything can change with one single phone call. That's often how it begins. If we live long enough, we're going to experience loss. And my purpose this morning is not to depress all of us, in fact, no, I think God has a, a wonderful word for us that's going to lift us up. But what, I'm, what I really want to do this morning is I want to offer comfort to those who are hurting. But I want to go beyond that. I want to equip us so should the day come, those of us who aren't hurting right now will be prepared and I also want to equip us so that we can come alongside our loved ones who are hurting. What do we say to them? The last thing we want to do is avoid them. God has a word for us. You can 
you can be sure that he has a word for us. And there's many places we could look this morning. Psalm 77 would be a great place to start. If you'll look there with me, just starting with verse 1. Our psalm begins with a cry, doesn't it? What's the psalmist say? I cry. I cry aloud to God. And this is more than an, in, an inward groan. I mean, it's a loud cry. Notice he repeats the aloud to God. I'm not sure words are coming out of the psalmist's mouth at this point. I, I have a, a good reason to believe that these aren't words. Sometimes our cries aren't words, are they? I, I don't think these are... These are words. I think the pain's too deep for that. I think this is just a cry. The psalmist has been crying for a while. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. It's obviously been stretched out for a while. If you stretch your arm out for a while, it will weary Unless, unless you're so upset that you're not even thinking about it. You can actually hold your hands out a long time when you're in that kind of condition. And I think that's where the psalmist is. As he's crying, I think he's kind of in this posture, crying out to God. Notice the words, in the night. Emotional pain is always worse at night, almost always. You ever, want, you ever notice that when we're hurting, how it's usually worse at night when our minds have leisure to wander into places where we'd rather they not wander? When will the day come? The psalmist, in short, he refuses to be comforted. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. I meditate, my spirit faints. There's a word here for both the believer and the unbeliever. I mean, for the believer who's walked with God for a long time, perhaps you've experienced these seasons where God seems so far away. And as you go through things, calling on God just doesn't seem like it's bringing any comfort to you. Where is He? And it's very hard to maintain your prayer life through those seasons. If you've gone through them, you know what I'm talking about. Psalmist speaks about his spirit fading. But there's a word for the unbeliever as well. I mean, the unbeliever has a different kind of agony. As unbelievers, we do everything we can to try to push God away, try to push Him out. That's what we do. That's why it takes a miracle to bring us to God. Our hearts have to change, literally, 180 degree change. It requires the touch of God. It requires grace from His holy hand. The Apostle Paul tells us that as unbelievers, we suppress every truth of God's existence. We, we don't want Him intruding in our lives, so we suppress that truth. We act like He's not there. We look for other ways. We look for other things to, cal to, to calm us, to comfort us. And where do these other things get us? They do bring some temporal relief. 
but they wreak havoc in our lives, don't they? The psalmist continues in verse 4. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot even speak. This is why I think the cry in verses 1 through 3 is not verbal. He says, I can't even speak. You hold my eyelids open. It's poetry. What's it saying? It's saying you can't sleep. I can't sleep. I can't speak. All I can do is cry. In verse 5, he considers a former day when joy and happiness were with him. And then verse 6, he says, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And by the word song in the night, the psalmist is thinking of a time when he was filled with thanksgiving. You know, the word song is a special word in the Bible. You know, the word song is usually associated with thanksgiving. If we think of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt, right after they crossed through the Red Sea, and after Herod and his army has drowned, and it's very clear that God has brought Israel to safety, what do they do? They sing. Chapter 15, Song of Moses, a great song. As we enter into the Christmas season, we're thinking of, of Mary's visit with Gabriel, where she's told that her virgin womb will be with child. And after she receives that news, what does she do? We have a recording of a song. We don't have the audio. We have the words, don't we? We call it the Magnificat, or we call it the Song of Mary. And I, I wish we had time this morning to probe this a little bit more, but we could think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They're imprisoned and beaten and put in the stocks for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Treated awfully. And in their wounds and in the stocks about midnight, we're told that they do what? Grumble, complain. No, they start singing. They break forth into song. They start singing hymns. What's that all about? They're thankful to be in Christ Jesus. They're thankful to be His. It's out of thanksgiving. So the psalmist is longing for the days when he also sang in thanksgiving. Now it's right here in verse 6 where the psalmist turns. He writes, Then my spirit made a diligent search. And in the midst of this search, he asks a series of questions. If you look down, verse 7, 8, and 9 are a series of questions. He says, well, verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? What's he doing? He's asking a question. He thinks back to the goodness of God. And he reasons, is this the way God works? Does God abandon his children? It seems like that's what he does, but is that really what he does? And of course, the answer is implied, no, that's not what he does. Verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? You know, has the storehouses of God's love run empty? Has the well of God's mercy run dry? Well, of course not. Psalmist continues in verse 8, are his promises at an end for all time? In other words, has God relinquished his promises? Has he changed his mind? Has he reneged? 
let's run through that for a few minutes. Remember, we, we, we might think about the great promise God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. In you, all the families are going to be blessed. Well, sorry, Abraham, we made a good start at it, but I'm just not up to it anymore. Is that how God works? No way. No way. Or we think about the great covenantal promise that God makes in Leviticus 26, 12, promise that, listen, I'm going to make you my people and I'm going to be your God. Has he changed his mind? Sorry, everyone, you know, that would seem like a good idea, you know, all those years ago, but uh, I'm on to something else now. Or the promise of a Savior. I know I made all these promises. Yeah, I promised you a Savior, and I gave you a Savior, and He's been saving people, but now, you know, we're off onto other things. It's absurd. It'd be even blasphemous to suggest such a thing. In verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The answer is obviously no. Now, what is the psalmist doing here? Well, first he starts out crying. And he's allowed to start that way. Some of us might think we're not allowed to start that way. You're allowed to start that way. We're allowed to do that for a season of time, but we're not allowed to stay there. We got to transition to the second stage that we see here, if I might call it that. I don't really want to call this stages. I don't really want to do that. But for, for the sake of illustration, he begins to, he begins to look at, the, at the, the goodness and the power of God. He begins to gather what information he knows about God, and he begins to systematically put his doubts through what he knows about God. What is he doing? He's doubting his doubts. That's what he's up to here. He's doubting his doubts. And we would do well to take careful notice here. John Calvin commenting on this verse, he said, Arguments drawn from the goodness of God repel the assaults of Satan. Arguments drawn from the goodness of God repels the assaults of Satan. Now, there's a couple ways we can go right here. As we think about our doubts, and when we're in despair, their doubts are there. There's no question. There's no despair without doubts of some kind. What is despair? It's a lack of hope. When we don't have any hope, we're making predictions that this is all the better it's going to be. It can't ever be any better than that. These are, these are our doubts. We doubt that it's going to get any better. Now, there's one path we could take. We could, we could embrace those doubts. We could hold on to those doubts. And if we do that long enough, we're going to become very negative. And where will negativity lead us? It leads us right to the door of these two cousins, cynical and skeptical. They're close cousins. You ever notice that the negativity in this valley is rampant? Skepticism and cynicism is rampant. This happens when we don't have anything to do with our doubts. If there's no God in our life, then that is, it, 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 it is as good as it's ever going to get. It isn't going to get any better. If there's no Jesus, if there's no God, no Holy Spirit, no Father, 
That's one path we could take. There's another path we could take. It's the path that the psalmist takes. God is everything. He seems really far away right now. But let me just think about what I know. What do I know? What do I know? I know some things. Let's take our doubts. And let's systematically go through them with what we know about God. And what happens as he does this? Well, this brings us to verse 10. It's a pivotal verse. Notice what he says in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Notice that he's gaining some strength. He's gaining some strength. He's setting his doubts against the goodness and faithfulness of the power of God, and it's strengthened him. Now he's going to appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. By right hand, what is he talking about? He's talking about the power of God. The power of God. If I might you know, recall from Exodus 15 and verse 6 again, uh, Moses in this song, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It's an example where the right hand of God is used. What is it used to show? The power of God, the faithfulness of God, the strength of God, the deliverance of God. And the name is significant. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand, of the Most High. Who is the Most High? He is God and He is just what the Most High suggests. There's no one higher. The Hebrew name is one you've heard before, El Elyon. He's the most high. There's no higher. He's the supreme being. He's as high as it gets. We don't go up any higher than that. The elevator stops. In fact, the elevator can't even make it halfway there. It can't even make it a percentage of the way there. He is the most high. And by years, what's he referring to? Well, he's referring to uh, the works and wonders that God has done over the centuries as the rest of the psalm begins to flesh out. So what is the psalmist doing up to this point? Well, with a partially renewed spirit that he has gained from doubting his doubts, he's now got the strength to begin looking back to the works and the wonders of God. Verses 11 and 12 capture this. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, one of the great works that the psalmist ponders is God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And we would do well to really familiarize ourselves with the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. Israel, in this, in this great story that we have, they have become slaves to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is treating them very ruthlessly. And they call out to God and he delivered them out of the house of bondage, you know, through a series of miraculous plagues. And one of the most miraculous works of God's hands was crossing the Red Sea, as we've already made notice of, we already talked about. And what's basically going on is God is called, uh, the, the Israelites, they call out uh, to God underneath the oppression of this horrible king in Egypt. And God hears their cry and he raises up Moses to, uh, to deliver them. 
And Moses is given the assignment of going back to this king, back to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he is told this. He said, listen, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go back to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him to let my Hebrew, let the people go. Let the Hebrew people go. That would have been a, a dreadful assignment. Going back to the most powerful man in the world who was commander-in-chief of the most powerful army in the world and saying, listen, I, um, I'm here to tell you to let your entire slave population go free. Was Pharaoh willing to do that? No, of course not. So God afflicted the Egyptians with a series of plagues. And uh, by the 10th plague, Pharaoh's more than willing to let them go. Pharaoh actually drives them out. So they begin marching out of Egypt and they're heading towards the Red Sea. Now, of course, their journey takes them to a place where there's a mountainous terrain on the left, mountainous terrain on the right, and there's a sea in the front of them. And they happen to take a look in the rearview mirror. And what do they see in the rearview mirror? Well, Herod's had a change of mind. He said to himself, what in the world have I done? He summons 600 chariots and his most valiant soldiers, and they begin to pursue Israel. So there's a big cloud of dust behind them. It's Pharaoh. He's on his way. We've got to see in front of us mountains to the left and to the right. What are we going to do? And God parts the sea. And Israel walks right across on dry land. It's one of the most magnificent works that God does in the Bible. And there's a lot that we could say about it this morning. But the psalmist is recalling this. He's recalling this miraculous deliverance in verses 15 and onward. He says, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Isn't that a beautiful verse, verse 19? Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were not seen. What's going on here? What's happening? The psalmist started out in the tank, didn't he? He cries. Then, with what little strength he has, with what little strength he can muster, he begins to think about what he knows about God. And he begins to apply his doubts to what he knows about God. He doubts his doubts. And as he's going through this exercise, guess what? His eyes are taken off himself and they're put on the Lord. As he gains strength, don't think that this is something that happens in 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes many weeks for this process to take place. I don't want to give you the impression that, okay, good, great, man. This is a, it's a great little thing we got here, you know, next time we're in the tank. This is, uh, should, Rick, I got a better title for your sermon, 15 minutes out of the tank. That would have been a better, no, this is not 15 minutes out of the tank. This could take weeks. It could take months. It could be 15 minutes out of the tank. I'm not going to say it can't. But I don't want to give anyone the impression this is a quick fix. As he systematically doubts his doubts, he gains strength. As he gains strength, he continues to look at God. He looks at past deliverances. He looks at God. As he looks at God, guess what? The rays of hope begin to shine into his heart. The rays of joy 
begin to shine in that dark place. But what's the message for us this morning? Well, we have a lot more to look at than this psalmist did. When we look back, what do we see? Many, many things. There's, there's a lot more on God's resume today than there was on God's resume back at the time this psalm was written. What has God added to His resume? The incarnation. What is that? The second person of the Trinity entering space, time, and history in the person of Jesus Christ, making good on a promise that He made back in, uh, back in Genesis 3.15. I don't know when that was. I know it was a long time ago. He's got a pretty good track record, God does. Pretty good looking resume. It's perfect. Jesus enters time, space, and history. He surrenders himself to the human flesh, if you will. For what purpose? To glorify God. To live that perfect life. To be the ideal person, the one we can look to. To take that perfect life and offer it on a cross for the sins of his people. Do you see the crack? There's a crack in this dark place. There's a little bit of light shining through. What do we say to those who are hurting at the time of the holidays? Well, we try to get their minds off of the situation. We try to get their minds on Almighty God. Cry. Doubt your doubts. Look to God. Gain strength from Him. Because here's what we can promise you. You're not going to lose Him. We could all get a phone call. The phone call that none of us want to get. But one phone call you will never get is a phone call saying you've lost your Lord. If you've got Christ, you're secure. You're safe. And you have a bright future. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you and praise you for this great word that you've given us. And I, Lord, lift up anyone that's here this morning that might be hurting. And I know that there are a few but Lord, what's more important is that you know. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would apply this psalm to their hearts. And anyone who hears this message, O oh Lord, or reads this message, I know there are quite a few that are hurting. Our prayers are for them, Lord. We ask that, Lord, you would, you would crack that place you would allow those rays of glorious light to shine through, that hope would indeed blossom and that joy would flower, and that a new view of the holidays would ensue, O oh Lord. For the holidays, O oh Lord, are ultimately, they're about you, O oh Lord. They're not about turkey and ham and our favorite pie. 
Oh Lord, this season, it's about you dwelling in our midst, making good on your promises. To these ends, Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we prepare for the Lord's Supper. I wonder if we could have Donald come forward and play verses 1 and 2 of our closing hymn.